you know, what we want to make is first-rate human problem solvers, not third-rate human computers. You think of how many kids around the world are depressed because of being unable to do their maths, are told that they're useless in one way or another because they can't calculate by hand, when in fact they may be perfectly good computational thinkers. They just may not be very good at, you know, doing their quadratic equation. And we're spending, you know, on average, I don't know, at least 10 years of people's lives, multiple hours per week while they're in school doing this stuff. So we better be pretty sure we know that it's useful. Hello everyone, this is the producer Basim welcoming you back to another episode of Wise Words, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and beyond. Are we due for a fundamental redesign of today's maths education? Joining us to discuss this is author of The Maths Fix and strategic director of Wolfram Research, Conrad Wolfram. You can find more information about his book and other resources through the links in the description. And also be sure to subscribe to Wise Words if you haven't done so already on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your preferred podcast app. Now let's get straight into it, introducing host and CEO of Wise, Stavros Yunuka, to kick things off. My name is Stavros Yanuka. I'm the chief executive of WISE. It's a real pleasure to welcome Conrad Wolfram back to WISE Words. Uh, It's almost two years to the day when uh, we recorded our first uh, conversation about the importance of rethinking uh, mathematics uh, education, which is, again, the topic of our uh, conversation today, but significantly enriched uh, by the publication of Conrad's a uh, new book called The Math or Maths Fix, um, which will form uh, a key part of our discussion. A reminder, Conrad is the strategic director and European co-founder and CEO of the Wolfram Group of Companies, uh, where he oversees business, marketing design, strategic technical projects, including Web Mathematica, which underlines the Wolfram Alpha uh, computer programming language, um, as well as uh, Wolfram.com. He is a technologist and uh, computer scientist, and not surprisingly, he's interested in how technology and computation can uh, impact our lives and the economy, uh, and in turn, how all of this affects um, education. His passion is computational thinking, and he has been a longstanding advocate for introducing that particular lens on the subject of mathematics uh, into our curricula. Conrad, welcome back to Wise Words. Nice to be here again. I don't know if I've given a fair introduction to you and and your work, or if there's anything that you you want to add. Uh, Certainly very fair. Uh, (laughs) um, No, look, I think think it's great. I think one of the things I, perhaps in a a unique position to see, uh, is in a sense, what's happened in the real world of computation and how it's affected decisions in all walks of life and what's happened in education. Um, At Wolfram, we've very much got our feet in all those camps. I mean, we are kind of the math company or the computation company, and we've been that uh, coming up to 32 years, actually. So we sort of deal with math and computation pretty much more than anyone else on the planet. And both you know, in the real world, so to speak, and in what happens in education. And that's given me a a unique perspective on the divergence that I see between those. 
So, so maybe, maybe let's start just by kind of reminding folks or, or introducing folks to how you became interested in, in mathematics as a subject of education and in particular, you know, um, what caused you to take a, a close look at the way that it's taught? I mean, it's been building for 15, 20 years. I, I could see this divergence. I could see the fact that decisions in the real world are being taken all the time using the power of computational thinking with increased computational power of the machine, the computer. And in education, it just seemed to be stuck on people learning how to calculate by hand. And I suppose this really came to the fore in 2009 with the release of Wolfram Alpha. And Wolfram Alpha is this linguistic way to ask, you know, to ask questions computationally. I mean, they could be math questions in a traditional way, you know, solve this equation, or they could be, uh, am I drunk? That's one that gives you a numerical answer. Or they could be, you know, how, how is the population of, uh, of Qatar compared to London? You know, I mean, it could be any of those things. And what happened was very strange. People said, firstly, a lot of educators then said, oh, wow, now we can do all this stuff on computers easily. And we were thinking, well, particularly for the straight math questions, we were thinking, uh, we've been doing this for like 20 years. <laughs> um, maybe it wasn't quite as straightforward through the web, but it's like, this isn't too much news for us. We were excited by all these other questions that seemed very new. So that was one interesting thing. The second thing that really got me going on this was they said, is it cheating to use Wolfram Alpha in our classes or, or for students to use for their homework? There was a big divergence. It's like, well, um, sort of yes and no. I mean, it's cheating. And so in the end, I gave a TEDx talk, uh, actually at the European Parliament, funnily enough, um, which had that question, you know, is it cheating to use this for my homework? And that's really where I brought out the start of this divergence. It's cheating. The questions you're asking don't seem to match what you'd be asked in the real world. Well, it wouldn't be cheating in the real world. And so that's how my interest really sort of galvanized into action, in a sense. So in, in one of the first chapters of the book, you speak about the two types of maths, right? I think the, it's actually your, the first chapter. It's titled Maths versus Maths. Do you want to just, just elaborate a little bit? Because I, you know, that, that seems to me a good articulation as well of, of where this divergence is happening. Correct. So as, as I say, math or maths, depending on which part of the world you're in, uh, is a name affixed to two very different subjects. So, so in, uh, in the real world, math is a subject, may not be called math, but effectively it's math that, that powers decisions. You, you use a computer, you set up a problem, and then you... Uh, you use this process of mathematics to get a really good answer. And whether that's you're building a car or you're, um, uh, or, or you're, you know, you're mapping out an electrical grid or you're trying to answer questions about how to handle the COVID pandemic, those are all cases where you use that. And you use it with a computer and calculating. In education, it's a subject in which the teacher hands somebody an abstract question which they can't connect to their real lives. You know, here's an equation to solve. And then you're supposed to do the solving of it by hand. And then that's kind of it, except if you're very lucky and you plug it back into some real world thing, but that's kind of rare. So we got two very different subjects and, and this is the maths versus maths. And, and in a sense, um, I mean, a summary of this is to say something like, you know, in, in the real world, so to speak, computers do almost all the calculating. Uh, and in educational maths, 
uh, people do almost all the calculating. And that's the divergence right there. And, and you know, add to which we're never going to be um, as good or as as fast or as accurate at, as computers at, at calculating. So Not by millions of fold. Yes. I mean, okay. one of the things I bring out in the book is, you know, if you ask people 100 years ago, I'm just picking a, a date, but if you ask 100 years ago, do you think it's more likely we will get to the moon or that we will be able to have machines that calculate in sort of a millisecond what a mathematician, a great mathematician in the past might have managed to calculate in a whole lifetime? People would say, oh, oh, you know, uh, that the moon's much easier, right? Um, the, the idea, I mean, this is the biggest turnout in terms of sort of automation of an area, mechanization of an area. I think this is pretty much well beyond any other expectation, any other realm of industrialization that we've ever, ever had in the world's history. We have completely turned something around from things that took many, many fold, many years sometimes for a human to do and turn them into something a machine can do much more precisely, much quicker. The bit the machine can't do yet very well is to the complexity of the problem set up to figure out why we'd want the answer, what the answer, what the questions we're trying to address, what the decision is trying to take, how it's going to empower us as humans to go further. So if I can, if I would, to summarize the, the sort of Conrad Jacques uh, towards mathematics education is that essentially we are training third-rate calculators. Yes. And in fact, I, I have a, a saying I sometimes like, which is that, um, you know, what we want to make is first-rate human problem solvers, not third-rate human computers. And what we're doing at the moment is the latter. Uh, and that's a huge shame. And, and one of the things I bring out a lot in the book is, in a sense, the extent... People might think that wasn't too damaging a misassumption. Maybe it's good for people's mind training. Maybe it's good as a first step. Maybe that proxy is not so damaging. One of the things I argue extensively in the book is it's very damaging. You think of how many kids around the world are depressed because of being unable to do their maths, are told that they're useless in one way or another because they can't calculate by hand, when in fact they may be perfectly good computational thinkers. They just may not be very good at you know, doing their quadratic equation. And so it's, and we're spending, you know, on average, I don't know, at least 10 years of people's lives, multiple hours per week while they're in school doing this stuff. So we better be pretty sure we know that it's useful and it's the right thing to be doing if we're putting all of that energy into it. And one of the comparisons I make with this is with Latin in the UK and, and, and Europe, in many cases, certainly in any sort of academic style school in, in the UK in the 1950s. And it sounds crazy now. In order to get into, a let's say, a good university in the UK, whatever you were trying to read, whether it was you know, biology or whatever, you had to have Latin. You had to have done Latin to A-level, as it was in the UK, the, the exam just before you go to university. And it seems crazy. What, why would you have to be good at Latin in order to do biology? It doesn't make any sense. But it was a kind of a test, a bit like maths is in some quarters. It's kind of like it, it wasn't the real thing you were doing. And you know, and that's not, just to be clear, many people might enjoy Latin or the existing maths. I'm not, if people enjoy it or they're interested in it, that's wonderful. What I'm talking about is the mainstream subject everybody's forced to do and is a cause of much angst 
And if we're going to have a subject like that justified, and I, I think there is a justifiable computer-based math subject, but if we're going to have any subject justified like that, it's got to be helpful to people in their real lives in a, in a, to a reasonable extent. I mean, just I mean, two, two reactions to that. One, I mean, one is, I, I think I'm, I, I'm broadly in agreement with you. I, I think there is room, though, for some sort of mental or arithmetic training, you know, that's kind of akin to, I don't know, physical fitness, right? You know, we should all kind of run and, and walk, even though we don't need to anymore. For our survival, but it's 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 kind of good for our you know good for our heart and 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 for our head. But I I mean I fully agree that the the stakes and the way that in a sense uh, people are turned off the subject is is cause enough to for a fundamental rethink. So let, let me ask that. I mean, funny enough, in your question about physical fitness and walking and things, you made a good case for why actually you do need to walk around the place or. or have some exercise. It does matter. It is actually a survival issue to some extent. I mean, there are different ways you could manifest. You go to the gym or you walk around or whatever, but fundamentally it's important, you know, mentally as well. It's it's probably important to, I certainly find that. Um, I get much touchy with people if I haven't had my my bike ride or whatever, you know. So um, you have justified it, I think, perfectly rationally. And I think, again, when we look at mathematics, we need to be very cold and calculating about its justification. And there are cases where it makes sense to do stuff in your head. I mean, I, as I said in the book, I use times tables in my head quite often for estimating. Now, I don't think there's anything very grand about times tables. I just think they're quite useful. And right now, it's more convenient for me to work that out sort of for estimating up to about 10 times 10 than it is to pull out my, you know, my smartphone or to use my computer or whatever it is. I don't think that's some sacrosanct thing. I think it's just, that's the way it is. And there are other cases where I think forcing some way to, in a sense, manually do the thing, even if you'd normally get a machine to it, may be useful. But we got to be really, really careful because the, the temptation always is to look back at your own learning, and of course, all of us have learned maths in the traditional way, and to project that onto what we now need. And to say the only way we can get that mental agility is to do it the way we did it and not to do it different ways. And one of the things I I bring out a lot is, I, I mean, I think the subject I'm talking about is, in my view, more conceptual and more intellectual than our current maths curricula. And if intellectual and conceptual in slightly different ways, it's much broader. You're looking at big problems, which are messy and have many, many, many parameters. And you're trying to understand how to put those into a way that you can compute something useful out of. So that's a quite different process. But in the middle of that process, there's something you have to do, which is you have to write down the abstraction of your problem. And traditionally, you do that by, you know, writing up squiggles on the page. Uh, and people would like this rather cryptic uh, you know, where you write things. Nowadays, what you do is you write a program, you write code. That's how you describe what you do. And in a sense, the mental agility that you use for the maths process is actually pretty related in some ways to mental agility that you would use for coding. So if you want to introduce that processization, that, that you know, procedurizing idea and many of the things and the sort of precision that you get with that, 
let's do it with something real. And the real thing is writing this abstraction down in code. Um, and by the way, just to be clear, I mean, the subjects of coding that there are around the world definitely relate to the subjects I'm talking to, but they definitely aren't the same. And we have some issues we perhaps come back to of where coding might be diverging from what I think we 100% need. But it's great that we have coding coming back as an issue. Before, before we dive into the sort of details of, of the fix, you do say in the book uh, quite a bit about why you think we're, we're sort of stuck with this sort of traditional uh, way of, of, uh, of, of teaching maths. And, and you kind of you point a finger at both educators and policymakers. Do you want to say a little bit about, you know, about why you think we're, we haven't really moved on this issue? Look, my view is that I don't think there's any one body or set that's gone wrong here. I think we've got an ecosystem of education that has got stuck, and it's particularly stuck for subject change. So here's what I mean. If, if you want to teach maths, today's maths, in a better way, in quotes, so that you get better exam results, there are various ways to try and make that happen, and maybe even to build a nice organization that makes lots of money to do that. And that's fine. And I think we've seen pedagogical improvements in different places. And that's that's well and good. If what you want is to change the actual content, that's completely different. We've got the whole system is against you. You've got exams that are on the existing content. You've got to persuade parents, teachers, often governments, schools, all at the same time. And they're all into and universities all interlocked. You know, I can't apply to uh, a good university if I haven't got the right grades in the traditional subject. But the traditional subject is measured with traditional exams. The teachers and schools aren't going to change what they teach because they want to get their students into good universities. So we have this sort of what I call a stuck ecosystem of education. And, one, and the comparison I use this is if you wanted to start a company in, let's say, the 1970s, in most countries, it was very, very difficult. And pretty much from the U.S., that got unlocked. Now, most countries are competing to say, we're a great place to do a startup. You know, they're falling over themselves to encourage people to, because startups are such a powerful way of moving the economy. That's the sort of change we need to see in the educational ecosystem. And I think it comes, you know, it, there's no one big fix, just like there wasn't for startups. There's, you know, in startups' case, it was financing and it was government regulations and it was attitude. Attitude's a big issue. And there's an attitude to risk. And incidentally, we see that with coronavirus, what, what people mean by different risks and whether things are safe or not safe. And, and in fact, I just tweeted about nothing can be proven to be safe in the literal meaning of the word. So you've got to be very careful. That. And I think we have the same kind of risk issue with education. We can't try it on a cohort of students because it's risky to do so because it might fail. But the only problem is what we're doing at the moment has many failures as well. So we've got to balance trying something new and abilities to do that with our current risk profile. And there's a big risk profile for those trying to enact this. If you're a policymaker, I completely understand why you don't want to try something, a new subject, because you may not be in power for that long. <laughs> you know, if you screw something up, everybody will jump all over you. But if you just continue with the status quo and just do an okay job, then probably you won't be in too much trouble. That's not fair on policymakers either. So that at each sort of end of this, we've got to look at how to look at the real risk. And one of the arguments I make is on risk, 
what seems risky to, let's say, a policymaker now may in fact be uh, less risky to our populations in the long term. You've got to look at the risk profile for our students over the long term, and that isn't balanced with the risk profiles in the ecosystem of education at the moment. So let's let's take, I mean, as we as we look look ahead at the you know at the fix. Let's you know I'm cognizant that I might sort of I might be walking us into into sort of a, a bit of a minefield with what I'm about to say now. But but let's take let's take the pandemic. You know, suddenly I think you know a lot of people around the world have become aware of modeling as statistical modeling as a as a sort of policy making tool uh, and a tool for projections. I mean, walk us through what a kind of computational thinking approach would look like if, say, a class were being asked to sort of develop a you know a, a predictive model for you know for, for how you know how the disease might or might not unfold? Well, the first thing, which I make actually uh, fairly clear at some point, uh, actually quite late in the book, is you've got to be clear where things can work and where they don't work. So computational thinking is a very powerful decision-making tool, but it doesn't work everywhere. It doesn't work all the time. And one of the huge problems in this pandemic is people, some people, some experts overstating what they can predict. And so one thing we've got to start at the outset is, oh my goodness, there are you know, we're, we're, there are two hugely interlocked issues, health and economics, both unbelievably complex. We've got a virus where we don't really know, I mean, we're learning more, but we don't really know lots of stuff about it, you know, how badly it spreads in what way. Of course, people know much more than they did a few months ago, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a hugely complex set of systems and there's a limit to what we can predict. So that's the first sort of visceral reaction. One of the things we need to introduce in computational thinking is a visceral reaction, an instinct. And we don't get the talk. You know, if you ask somebody from my maths education, what I've just said, is that obvious to most of our populations? The answer is no, it ought to be, right? That's intrinsic to what we should be teaching. Okay, so then you look at the actual approach and you say, really, there are four steps. There's kind of, the first step is defining the question we're trying to actually hit. So in the UK, for example, one of the questions they were trying to hit is, how do we make sure that the National Health Service that, you know, doesn't get overwhelmed? Because the worst possible thing, as they thought, they might have been right or wrong in this assumption, by the way, is that we run out of ventilators and we run out of space, you know, beds in London. And that means we have people who needlessly die because, because there just wasn't space. We didn't have the equipment. So the thing we've absolutely got to do is model something that tells us how to kind of push down the curve in order to avoid that. So that's, so that's, if you like, the definitional stage. What is it we're trying to actually figure out? Then you're abstracting. You're saying, well, okay, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a representation of this where we can get some prediction out of it. Now, there's a huge range of tool sets for doing this in the modern world. You know, there's equation solving, there's machine learning, there's all sorts of data science, et cetera, et cetera. One of the problems in our education at the moment is we only teach a tiny slither of these that happens to be amenable to hand calculating, which is mostly what we wouldn't use in the real world. Machine learning, you can't do in education uh, if you don't have computers. Never, never existed before computers. You've got to have computers do machine learning. So you're then picking your model and you're picking how you're going to approach it. And then you are trying to compute an answer using that. And that's step three, which mostly is done on computers. And then you're getting to step four, which is you're trying to interpret the results. You know, is, so if we... Uh, let's say, socially distance 
for two meters. Our model is going to try and predict that, you know, the spread of the virus in this case, in these places, is going to be this much worse if it's, you know, two meters rather than one meter, or if we allow people to go out of their homes or whatever. And so when we feed that all into the model in great detail, what we end up with is a prediction saying that this is what we think is going to happen. And then we look at it and we say, does this make any sense? I mean, just looking at the original question, looking at what we've ended up with, is this rational in any way? Does it, does it pass a kind of sense test? And that's really the process in the sense of computational thinking, just in that case applied to something very, very complex. And one of the problems you've got to say in the interpretation phase is, you know, if I got one of my assumptions a bit wrong, actually, how wrong is the, is the answer here? Um, and I'll tell you one case that I'm worried about with the pandemic, the assumption in the models is that you get enough viral load to be infected or not infected. And once you're infected, it's just like binary. You're, you're either got enough to go on making the, you know, being infected with the virus, but you're not. I'm not sure that's right. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But another possible thing is that actually, if you're worse infected, you've got more virus at the beginning, you may end up with a worse infection. But none of the models I've seen assume that. So that may totally change the predictions of what we should do. And that's a typical assumptive issue. And what I want our population to do is not only to be able to do run the model. No, 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 most people in the population can't make a model like this. They'll never be able to. That's not what I'm arguing. But when they're presented with things, they need to have a sense check. They need to be able to ask the right questions and not just take, you know, if they're told, is it safe to go back to school? You know, the government says it's safe, let's say. Let's say the teaching groups say it isn't safe, right? Now, there is no such thing as safe, not safe. There's a risk profile. We need to have populations who understand that. You know, there's a certain set of things. You might get, I'm afraid you might get killed in a car accident on the way to school. You know, so the question is what happens between those risk profiles? And we need people to get a sense of that, to get experience that, and they're getting none of that at the moment. I, I was going to say, even even going going back to your, your, your so the caveat you made at the, at the beginning about, you know, things things that are, that are capable of, of sort of being predicted with, you know, with some degree of accuracy versus those that are not. I mean, there are, again, mathematical tools for kind of dealing with that. I mean, I, I've sort of become, a, you know, a little bit more interested in um, Bayesian probability at the moment because it kind of, it, it, it's a nice way of dealing with, or it's an easy to understand, I should say, way of dealing with, uh, with uncertainty. And, and to think, you know, think in terms of ranges of, of probabilities, which again, you know, I, I think it's something, you know, it, it's interesting because kind of people in, instinctively understand that if you, if you, you know, if you talk to them about, you know, betting and, and, and you know, and odds on, on a, on the outcome of a, you know, of a football match or a, or a horse race, they'll, they get that very, you know, very intuitively. They understand that you know you you don't know ahead of time, right? You have some information and some indication as to what is likely to happen, but there's a range of possible outcomes, right? That that depend on you know on on various variables. And and to me, the pandemic kind of would have lent itself to that kind of analysis, where especially at the beginning, you say, look, there's a whole bunch of things we don't know, but here's a worst case scenario that we you know we think has a reasonable you know probability of 
of maybe playing out. And therefore, in the beginning, maybe we need to, you know, we need to do X, Y, Z. Yeah, I think that in the pandemic's case, it's so complicated and so unknown. They really didn't know what the worst case was. And we had people, I mean, there were well-known predictions in the UK, for example, which were you know, horrific. Half a million people would die in the UK out of a country of 65 million, um, which I considered were, you know, one of these things where experts were pushing, pushing what they had to say beyond what they really knew. And here's the danger with that. So, so I, I want to come back to your earlier point about sort of your, your judgment of probabilities, but let's just to make this point about experts. One of the periods we're in, I think, in the world is one where there's a lot of sort of the, the way in which people are projecting uh, rationality is really questioned. Right. I mean, we have all over the world, we have things where the, the what apparently seem to be, so to speak, the scientific agreed scientific approach, if I can put it that way, the reasoned approach is really being very severely questioned. Now, you've got to ask why that is a little bit. And I don't think it's just, so to speak, the public's fault. I think one of the problems there is that it's partly because we haven't had education that allow, as we were talking about in the previous uh, previous conversation, I, we haven't had education that's allowed people to get any experience of these issues. So then when they're confronted with expert A, who says, you know, I can tell you they're going to be 500,000 dead, it's they don't know how to deal with that. And then if expert A proves eventually not to be right, then they say, you see, you just didn't know what you were talking about. So we're not going to believe any expert who projects anything and then we're going to go into the sort of hocus-pocus world of not really believing any of the scientific process or the data science process, whatever you want to call it. That's very dangerous. And I'm arguing that you need a new enlightenment, a computational enlightenment, basically, to, to get out of that. You, you need something where most people understand enough to be able to question those things reasonably. Now, back to your point about Bayesian probability and, and so forth. I mean, the way I look at this is that there's a tool, that's one tool set that you have felt reasonably comfortable with, maybe partly from your schooling, partly from what you've done since, partly from your way of thinking about things. And that's great. And that's one where you feel you have enough experience to be able to sort of visualize it and, and apply it to different things. And that's great. Um, firstly, many people don't have that for any tool set in mathematics. Secondly, there are many others of those sorts of tool sets. And my argument would be what we want to imbue in people is that multiplied many times by different tool sets through their education. So they can say, well, okay, this actually feels like a data science type thing to me. And I can see from a sort of data science perspective how I might look at this problem or, you know, et cetera. So I think, I think it's very useful to be able to see these things. And I think um, another part of this is the discourse. You know, you just mentioned probabilities, right? Now, I immediately know what probabilities are. I have a picture in my head of that. Most of the population don't really. If you mention conditional probabilities, I would also know something of what you meant. And so that, that sort of vocabulary being established, I also mentioned quite a lot in the book, is, is in itself. We shouldn't be embarrassed about that. We learn vocabulary when we're learning a language. We should learn vocabulary for the language of computational thinking or maths as well. That's fine. But attaching it to the bigger principles of what we're doing. No, I, I absolutely hear you. And, and I think I, mean, I, I brought it up as an example, one, because it just it just happens to be what what I've uh, I've been sort of get, getting into a little bit these days, but but too because I I, I, fa I found it interesting how 
because I haven't had a, a, a great maths education. I'll be, you know, I, I went up to O levels and then I, I gave up because I, I just didn't want to be doing the, the calculating and the, and the, and the sort of computation anymore. Right. But as I sort of, you know, became an adult and got, got into a little bit more of, of um, into the abstract world of, uh, of mathematics and into, into some of these tools, like the statistical tools, I thought, hey, this is actually quite interesting. You know, I, I wish I'd, you know, <laughs> I'd, I'd done more of this at, at, you know, at some point in, in my education. Um, but also because you know, I, I, find, I found it intriguing that either that one, once you translated probabilities into odds, right, and once you start using examples from you know typically poker or you know the rolling of the dice, it suddenly becomes much much more relatable to experiences that you know maybe not everyone has, but certainly more people will have you know, experience of, you know, of, of gaming, uh, of, of gambling, you know, betting than, than they will of, of abstract sort of statistical concepts, right? So, I mean, I, the main thing I really, really agree with in what you're saying is we got to attack, I mean, in the end, if this mathematics or any other subject, mainstream subject, isn't somehow attached to your life, it's kind of like, what was the point? And, you know, I mean your life, though, very, very broadly. And I define this quite comprehensively in the book, actually. You know, don't – when I say you've got to be very clear what the reason for doing something is, um, I mean you should, you should then have a very wide set of reasons you'll accept, right? Not just that you'll get a better job or that you'll pass this test, but that maybe it'll enrich your life. Those are all perfectly good reasons. And uh, – it's it's sort of important to not make those too narrow. Um, so then you've got this issue of uh, um, you know kind of you know how do you relate this to real life and who what what thing in real life is it most related? To? Now I think you know you you instinctively can see the odds and the uh, you know the different. Uh, um, uh, ways that you might bet, for example. Um, I, for example, know less about that, uh, but I know more about, uh, um, you know, there might be different kinds of things that interest me, how I cycle my bike or, you know, how I drive my car and things like that. So I think the very most important thing is somehow that we can relate whatever we're doing to real life for that student at that time and something that might be interesting to them in the future. And if we fail to do that, and if indeed we fail to start from that point, we'll lose many of them. And so I'm, no doubt for you, Stavros, it was good you know, to start from a sort of probabilities and betting and this sort of thing was something that you immediately had some interest in and could think about and, and you know, games and how that works. I don't think it'll work for every student. It'll work for quite a lot of them. And But if it isn't that, it should be something else. And that's one of the reasons we... When we built our computer-based maths modules, we started from what we thought were real problems that might be interesting to different students and tried to just try a different set of those. And some students would be interested in some and some will be interested in something else. And that's sort of an approach I think should be used generally. Don't start with the abstract issues. Start with the real, the real thing that we think might be connected. Look, look, data science is a way of taking a, a large amount of data typically, may not be large, but today it usually is, and 
trying to work stuff out from it. I mean, that's basically what it amounts to. And it's it's a bit different from what sort of were traditional, um, what might be called probability and statistics, in the sense that what you were trying to do there was you didn't have much computing power often, and so you were trying to minimize the computational effort. Nowadays, with data science, you know, the assumption is you've got lots of computing power, so you can throw a million data points in and just look at them and see what happens. You know, can I find a trend in this data, as opposed to having some very grand theory beforehand? It's often how it's approached, but not always. Um, so really, data science is a bundle of tools within computational thinking that starts, in a sense, from the data and tries to work out things you can work out from that data. And the more computing power we've had, the more the tool sets we have available for that, the more options there are, the more ways we can think about it. So a typical example we bring up in one of our modules, a module called, um, uh, you know, how can I spot a cheat? Uh, and what we do is we uh, uh, we get half the class to toss a coin and actually write down as it heads or tails, and the other half of the class to cheat by just typing H and T onto their keyboards. And then we pass information to the teacher. And the question is, can the teacher tell who cheated and who didn't? Answer typically yes. That's very interesting. How can the teacher tell? Um, we run a bunch of statistical tests on it, data science tests, and you can sort of see uh, more or less that when they've done it properly, it passes all the tests, and when they've cheated, it doesn't. The answer is to do with patterns of the data. People usually overcorrect and don't, aren't random enough, so to speak. But, but the point about that is what you're doing there is you're doing data science on the data you've collected and using it to draw a conclusion in that case. And that's what you know, credit card fraud detection type things work that way. And so that's a typical data science type thing. Um, information theory is, is a wide range of things, but to do with signals and how you get signals in one way, you know, how you would put a code, you know, could you make a code? We have a, a module about, um, uh, you know, if you're seven, for example, if you're seven years old, let's say, and you wanna make a password your friends can't break into, What's a good, you know, what, what are things that would make the password more or less secure? Um, that would be a typical example in, in that realm. Now, I was, I was saying that logic underpins a lot of, a lot of the approaches that you're advocating for. And, and it's something that's conspicuously absent as a kind of formal subject from our education system. I'm, uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. And, and whether this, your approach, might not be a way for reintroducing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so look, I think there are three really important reasons why you need a mainstream core computational subject. I mean, that's what I call, uh, one of the things I do in the book is, the, the, the trouble with the word math or maths is that it really polarizes people. And so early on in the book, I say, I'm not going to talk about the word math. I'm going to talk about our core computational subject, which is what what we need to be teaching people for many hours a week during many years of their lives. I think there is such a subject. I think there are three good reasons for it. There's the technical jobs that are going to go on being very important. There's the logical thinking we've talked quite a lot about, the, the ability to just process day-to-day -day things in a computational society. And I almost call that computational literacy. I sort of think of computational thinking is the sort of higher end thing. Computational literacy is just being able to read 
day-to-day things that you need in a society to survive today. And then the third thing is what one might call logical mind training, ability to think, to reason. And I think that we aren't doing a very good job of that right now. You know, people would say that maths is the subject of mainstream subjects at school where you're supposed to be really doing that. And obviously, I hope you're being taught to think in every subject that you take. But you'd think that maths was kind of the bedrock of that. And yet what maths is in most curricula, the mainstream maths in school I'm talking about, is really applying processes to abstract things that you don't really care about in most cases. Most people don't care about very much. And that isn't training this sort of, you know, complex way of of thinking. And so one of the things I do, I take a whole chapter, actually, in my book, I think it's chapter uh, six, to talk about the outcomes we need in our education for thinking. I mean, if you look at most outcomes lists for, uh, you know, as in most countries have curricula, which have a list of outcomes they're trying to achieve from each subject or even across the whole curriculum. If you look at the maths outcomes, for example, they really don't hit this issue of logical thinking at all. They sort of talk about individual bits of logic. You know, the person must be able to logically reason. uh, And, you know, (laughs) but it's kind of on micro points. You know, can they solve this equation logically? So we've built an outcomes list that is trying to address these much bigger picture thinking issues. And in the end, this is a defining uh, matter of our future education. So, but, I mean, the issue we're in, we 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 are in a a new era. You know, some people call it the industrial, the fourth industrial revolution. Some people call it. I, I've tended to call it the AI age. But it's basically an era in which we humans are sharing uh, intelligence with machines. Previous inter- in industrial eras have not been that. It's mostly, as I put in the book, been about brawn versus versus instead of brains. You know, can we can we outmuscle a machine, or can the machine do something that we couldn't physically do? That's changed for this. So, what's been a quintessentially human facet of of intellectual thought, so to speak, is now shared somewhat with computers. So then the question is, what is it in education we need to learn, and what are we going to just leave to the computer? And the one mistake is to think that what we need to learn is how the computer operates. That's never going to work. You know, you don't learn how to run a farm today by knowing, you know, how to design a tractor. That's just not how it works. The automation allows you to step up to the next level. So that's, but then you ask, well, what kind of thinking, what kind of logic is it that we as humans now need to know so that we don't get fooled by the computer? And uh, we also... Um, can make progress using the power of a computer. And we can, in a sense, be, uh, you know, the computer can be omnipresent, but not omnipotent. You know, we are the leaders. We are managing the computer, not allowing the computer to to manage us. And that's sort of the approach I think we need in terms of, uh, I would call it not just logic, I would call it thinking, you know. And I think there are great ways to help all of our students do better at thinking, at modern human thinking but we're not really doing quite a lot of those. And I think maths or core computation is, is the bedrock of that. So what you, what you just said, Conrad, is, is the hope, I guess, that this approach is also going to be a lot more equitable in, in the sense that it will perhaps open up opportunities to more uh, students to, to access what are actually very highly sought after skills. 
um, and and open up job opportunities uh, to to them that are now stymied by the fact that they you know they they're not able to solve quadratic equations if they even know what those are. Indeed. So I think there's several layers of this. Absolutely agree with this. I mean, let, look, not everyone's going to be a high-powered, you know, computational thinker able to model pandemics, right? That's for sure. That's going to be a small group always. Um, however, by the way, I do think for that group, we can get more into the group by what I'm proposing. And also they can be much better equipped and get to that stage much better and, and do a better job of decision-making. Okay, so that, that, that's just that group. Talk about everybody else. We are losing everyone you know, not everyone. We're losing a large number of people early on, uh, as you say, because they get put off by one way or another. And we're also losing a rather odd group. So here's what I mean by that. You know, if you're talking about equity, I think one thing that often marks out sort of socioeconomically disadvantaged groups is a lack of confidence. And one of the ways that manifests is because they have less confidence to push through sort of abstract abstraction first, I'll put it that way. You know, I'm not saying they're any worse at abstraction or intellectual thought, not, not necessarily at all. It's just that you know, when you're presented something very abstract first, if you're confident from a sort of, you know, confident background, you're likely to be able to push through that for longer before you gain the confidence. You don't need to gain the confidence to do that. So that is cutting out. I think that's exactly the position in mathematics right now. We're cutting out people with low confidence often. And in the end, they'd probably be perfectly good at some of the stuff. They might even be good at the traditional maths, but not led from the abstraction first because they can't push through knowing why you'd solve your quadratic equation before they know how it might apply to their lives or because their parents didn't go to university so that they aren't necessarily thinking along those lines and therefore it's kind of like they don't have the confidence to do that. So I think we're losing a huge set of people who are getting put off because they can't associate with their real life before they abstract. Now, when you then look at what, what will happen to those people, I think a lot of those people will then at least learn something about how to apply computational thinking. They'll get some computational literacy to the point where they're not just believing everything that they're told by any expert, and they are able to apply some logic in their lives. And hopefully that gains us a new enfranchisement, which we haven't had in, in you know, I think we've been losing, we've been getting more disenfranchisement in recent times. Um, but, and so, but I think we'll also get out of that group, I think we'll also get some who really want to be specialist computational thinkers, mathematicians. And I think actually the set will be larger, not smaller, because I think we're turning people off. At the moment, mathematics curriculum in many countries is really falling between two stools. At one level, on one stool, it's like, those who really, really want to be mathematicians. And they're really, you know, they're very, very keen on maths in its current form. But the maths they're getting at school is kind of process and it's not really the big ideas. It's more just grinding through different things because we're trying to get everyone through it. And at the other end, the people who don't understand why on earth they're doing it, who don't care, who can't grind through it very well. And we're not getting either real-world application of math that's real, nor are we getting the intellectual mathematicians who want to do it, but actually are being put off anyway. And so, so I think this is a very big effect. And, you know, it's hard to quantify until we see countries really running this. But I think uh, all the signals are from small tests we've done and things that that is indeed the case, that equity has improved. Well, Conrad, it's always, always a pleasure 
to to exchange ideas with you. I think the maths uh, fix is a much needed text, and I encourage folks to get their hands on a on a copy. You were saying earlier that uh, hard copies are get, getting hard to come by, but it is available on uh, on Kindle as an as an ebook. What's the best way for people to uh, one find out more about the book and two more about your work in general? So, firstly, on the book's availability, look, we it's very nice that it's sold out so quickly. Um, we are, I mean, hopefully, this problem will not persist for for very long, and we will get you know good uh, you know reprints and everything out very soon but please be patient because i want as many people to be able to read this obviously as as they can and obviously uh, if you want the electronic version that's great that's obviously available everywhere uh, immediately and uh, and then please go on trying for the other but also let us know because we can prompt letting you know when it's back in in, in your country and things um, what i would say is go to the mathsfix.org and that will explain much more about the book and that's actually part of our computerbasedmath.org site. And um, another thing that I really want people to think about is uh, uh, one thing we're launching with the book is a campaign, in a sense, to put in front of policymakers, hopefully a large cohort of people from different areas to say, we want change. Because I think this will really help the risk profile I talked about earlier if we can get lots of people signed up on this. So what we've done at, at the end of the book, and you'll see this on the MassFix, uh, connected to the MassFix page, um, there's the uh, the MassFix uh, campaign for core computational curriculum change, or MFC to the five. Uh, and what that's really putting forward is five, what we think are pretty self-evident points as to what we need. You know, we need many of the things we've talked about. We need a computational subject that matches up to the real world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We should use machines where they make sense to use and so forth. So things I think many people would just agree to. And, and so I think if you can add your add, add your yourself to that, that will, again, be another voice to try and get. Because we've got to get to a point where politicians themselves and policymakers can't make this change without public engagement into the need for this. And so one of my purposes with this book is to help the public in general understand as much as they can about what's really needed there and help to push this forwards. And so I really, really encourage that. And that's one of the reasons I, I did spend the time to do this and write this book rather than just talking to policymakers. Although I think policymakers will find it's quite deep in terms of the kinds of things that I'm proposing as well. And different parts of the book seem to appeal to slightly different people. Um, and so don't, again, if you're a, a sort of general public reader of the book, um, you might, you know, you may find part two there are three parts and this is a little bit heavier um but that's fine you can get the gist of it from the other so i really hope uh, as many people as possible can uh, can uh, can gain from this and we can improve our education around the world that's really the objective no absolutely and, and look my my own take is that the the book is very very accessibly and entertainingly written so well done on that front oh, thanks. And, yeah, it's appreciated. and and again i you know i think this is you know we talk a lot, obviously, at, at Wise about uh, innovation in education. You know, oftentimes we're we're talking about the how. I think this is you know this is one case where we're very much talking about the what and the why of education, which are arguably um, you know potentially the the more important questions. Absolutely, uh, and, and and I think particularly because the outside world has moved so fast. And I mean, I think we're seeing it again. You know, the pandemic, for 
of course, many, many negatives of the pandemic, but I think there will be a few positives in sort of, you know, pushing us hard into things that really weren't quite right before in terms of how we're delivering education and also the subject matter. I mean, one of the things that's... <laughs> everybody who's doing on remote education right now has a computer in front of them. That sort of by definition. So it's slightly bizarre where they're making them by hand do things that their computer should be doing, right? So, you know, it's kind of a slightly odd thing. But that, that sort of the fact that we've had to do this suddenly in the pandemic has sort of pushed that issue rather harder. Um, and I hope also the pandemic will, I mean, I just think it's a reset for lots of things to, to look at. And, and I hope also what, what will be really exciting to me, a real good outcome from this will be, if we can start to find either countries or regions or groups who can say, you know what, I'm the minister or I'm the policymaker who really, I'm going to stick my neck out a bit. I'm going to try something different, which will improve the lot of many of my students. And yeah, there are some risks associated with this, but you know, in the end, it'll be better. Just like the people did in the 19th century who started making literacy a big, I mean, people said, just to be clear, in the 19th century, it was impossible to think that most of the population could learn to read and write. Just wasn't, you know, there were some smart people who could do reading and writing and most people just couldn't, right? That's been proved completely wrong. Literacy, I think, is a shining example of, of educational success and, and, and particularly handling equity. I think computational literacy can be such a thing. And, and what we need is the early exemplars to really push this and make this happen. And I think the more we can do that, and I'm sure in the wise community, there are great examples uh, of groups that can can really make this happen, can unlock that ecosystem of education. Conrad, that's a great uh, great place for us to to end with with that call to action, a call for computational literacy. It's a call that uh, Wise will will answer, and uh, this this podcast to a certain extent is, uh, I hope, uh, seen by you as part of very much part of that uh, your campaign for for much needed change. So. Thanks again for for being with us on Wise Words. Thank you. Uh, Good to talk to you, as always. And there you have it. Many thanks to Conrad Wolfram for joining us in this discussion, and thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, if you liked this episode, don't forget to let us know by reaching out to us on our social media channels and let us know what you think. All the links for that are in the description, along with Conrad's resources. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you want more from Wise Words. Thanks for tuning in and looking forward to having you here next time. All the best.